This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Well, a massive hack we've been talking a lot about. Certainly, it is on the mind of investors in Capital One today, driving that stock down 6 to 7%, depending on when you caught it over the course of the day. Let's get into it, figure out exactly what happened and what it means going forward. Jenny Serene is here. She is finance reporter for Bloomberg. She's here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. And Brian Vecchi, he is the field chief technology officer Excuse me for Veronis. He joins us on the phone from New York City. Jenny, I'm going to start with you lay this out for us for those who have somehow missed what's going on what exactly happened so capital one reported yesterday um and actually u.s prosecutors out in seattle charged someone um that there was a breach of capital one systems uh, about 100 million u.s consumers were affected um and the the data is really data that was tied to credit card applications so it's name and uh, address um, some financial information in terms of credit scores. The company did note that um, social security numbers weren't included for a vast majority of the consumers affected. Brian, you hear the word breach, especially as it relates to financial institutions, and people get very nervous. How much of this now is on the onus of Capital One? How much of this now is related really uh, to the devices, the cloud that was rented from Amazon Web Services? Well, I think Capital One, like any organization, has a mandate to protect the data of its consumers. Um, and to their credit, they responded quickly and I think pretty appropriately. But we, we kind of live in a world where these breaches are both commonplace and don't really matter much for large institutions. That's changing in Europe with the GDPR and in California with California Consumer Privacy, where there are there are probably going to be harsher penalties in the future for this kind of thing. But I think Capital One said they expect a hundred to one hundred fifty million dollar a cost for this breach, which works out to a buck to about a buck or buck fifty per user. From Amazon's perspective, it's a really good question: How liable are they? And Amazon and other cloud providers make it very clear that while that you're, they're providing the infrastructure and they provide some security controls, the ultimate responsibility for protecting the data lies with the companies that are using those services. So I don't think see anything um, related to Amazon being penalized in any way, nor do I think they should. Amazon provides the infrastructure. It's up to the organizations that are using this infrastructure to make sure that there's the right monitoring, detective, and preventive controls in place so that when something like this happens, they know about it. So, Jenny, talk a little bit about the response here, because as Brian indicated, they they did come out pretty quickly, maybe in contrast to what we saw with Equifax last year, which which seemed to sort of slow walk this until they were really uh, put in the spotlight. What are you hearing from people sort of around the financial services industry as it relates to the response? Well, it's interesting because normally when we see these breaches, you don't actually see an arrest. So that's kind of, it's actually kind of unique in that sense in that normally there's the breach and there's also an ongoing investigation into how it happened and who was the perpetrator. But in this case, um, I mean, Capital One actually in their statement last night said, it's actually because of the cloud that we were able to come up with who did this and, and um, you know, led to this arrest so quickly. Um, but yeah, it's definitely fascinating 
faster than what we saw with Equifax. Um, I think people really learned in that instance that the biggest piece that um, really upset consumers was just that the company sat on it for so long. And, and um, you know, Equifax would say we really tried to go as quickly as we could, but um, it really wasn't a good, I guess, reputational yeah. uh, look. It's really them. followed them around, I mean, for a year plus, yeah. right? Yeah, I mean, that was in 2017, so we're going on, oh, I two, mean... Almost two years. Almost yeah. two years now, and, um, and you know, their stock has completely recovered. They had the um, the FTC finally announced the charge, I think it was $700 million earlier this month, but, I mean, definitely still kind of hanging on to them, and, yeah. and so, yeah. Brian, as a CTO, taking a look at technology and the future of cybersecurity and the future of big mm-hmm. data and protecting big data, is this a company's biggest risk right now? Is data a company's biggest risk? Absolutely. Um, data is growing faster than it ever has before, and the kind of the, the the collaboration and convenience of using cloud data stores uh, means that companies both have more data and there's more access to it, and that's by design. We also live in a world where there are lots of sophisticated insiders. In this case, I believe um, she was a she was an administrator at a subcontractor that had access to perimeter controls to get access to this data. She escalated her privileges through a web application firewall. It's a really technical way of saying she was sophisticated. She knew what she was doing. Yeah. And I think what's really interesting here is that Capital One apparently discovered this because she was bragging about it on Twitter and Slack and kind of meetup group. Basically, she was talking about it in a relatively public forum. They didn't discover this because they had monitoring in place that let them know that there was unauthorized access to data. So I think companies are in a situation now where data is growing faster than it ever has before, and they're not properly measuring or mitigating the risk associated with it. We're seeing really smart companies, and I'm not saying that Capital One isn't, but we're seeing really smart companies put analytics and controls in place to detect these kinds of things, but you need automation to do it. There's no way that you're ever going to have enough people looking at logs trying to determine when someone is behaving badly. You need kind of next generation technology, and a lot of companies are treating this as a, you know, as a problem that's the same as it was five or ten years ago when we yeah. know, because we see breach after breach after breach, caused by both sophisticated insiders and advanced persistent external threats, we know that these breaches require better technology to yep. detect and prevent. Brian, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much. Brian Vecchi is Field Chief Technology Officer for Veronis. He joined us from New York City. Jenny Serain, she was here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio Finance Reporter. For Bloomberg, you're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Jason Kelly, Taylor Riggs here with you on Bloomberg Radio. I tell you, it does. It's a great choice of song because it feels very sporting. Are we ready? I mean, it really is. Everybody's getting ready with the anticipation of this big meeting. Not usually a lot of excitement around this July Fed meeting. So let's get into it. Dr. Stephen Skanky is here with us. He is Chief Economic Advisor at Keel Point. They're based down in Washington, D.C., wealth manager firm overseeing about $2.1 billion in assets. Stephen, great to have you with us. Thank you. It's great to be here. All right. So in anticipation of tomorrow, market consensus, quarter uh, of a point cut, that seems to be baked in. Why are we at this moment? Because if you go back to December, we were raising nut cutting. The uh, is a really interesting situation, and there's a lot of drama around it. Just just all the conversation that we, we see about it. And the reason for that is... Uh, if you just look at the uh, the data that the Fed normally would look at, there's not a very strong argument for a cut. Right. Uh, but at the same time, uh, we've we've had the uh, uh, the political process leaning on the Federal Reserve 
to uh, to do something to signal that they uh, that they acknowledge that there's issues going on in the world, uh, slowness in other countries, uh, turmoil around the U.S.-China trade issues that have slowed down economic growth in other places, uh, and that uh, and that the Fed needs to acknowledge it and do something about it. I really like that you brought up the political environment that we're in. We should also note, besides from being chief economic advisor at Keel Point, you're also former White House National Security Council staff member. So you've been in and around D.C. You have seen in past administrations who has pressured the Fed, who has not. Have you ever seen this type of political involvement in a Federal Reserve before, where you have someone, the president, really asking and telling them, the Fed, that they should be cutting? Well, there's certainly never been a situation where the president has been so public about it, communicating via tweet as to what they should do and uh, lamenting that we would have had better economic growth if they had really been on board with supporting his, uh, his economic program. That's very new. Uh, and, and while it's uh, not uh, untypical, of the way this president has communicated his views uh, with different parts of government, uh, it's very unusual vis-a-vis the Fed. So, so folks are really surprised, and uh, you've seen it uh, a little bit that the the Fed really doesn't know how to react to yeah. this. I mean, Jay Powell is his appointment as chairman, uh, and uh, and and while he's not quote his man at the Fed, uh, he is someone that the president vetted. Right before he put him in that job, and and, and trust his judgment. Judgment and uh, Jay Powell, uh, whether you agree with him or not, is highly respected right. uh, for his integrity and expertise and experience in the job that he has. And so, Doctor Skakey, when you think about tomorrow, you mentioned Jay Powell. You know, one of the nice things I think is that we do hear via press conference from Chair Powell every meeting now. What's the question you would ask him, assuming that we get this uh, 25 basis point cut? Well, the, the question that uh, I would ask and that the market certainly wants to know the answer to is, what are you going to do for us next? Mm-hmm. The, the 25 basis point cut, if that's what it turns out to be, and, and that's the odds-on favorite, uh, is, uh, uh, is an important signal, but it's already baked into the market. The, the run-up that we had in July is a reflection of that 25 basis points as a given. So the question is, what happens next? Uh, are they going to cut again in September? Are they going to cut again in, in, in December? Are they going to do something serious about this in providing monetary stimulus? Uh, or, or is this just a, sort of a toe in the water to see how the market reacts to this being done? Well, you mentioned the market. You opened up the conversation saying the data looks good. Is the Fed more market-dependent than data-dependent right now? Well, it would seem so, because all the conversation has been about a cut. Uh, And even former chair Janet Yellen weighed in yesterday with, uh, uh, with her observation that a 25 basis point cut in the Fed funds rate uh, would probably be a good thing, that with inflation under control, the Fed has the latitude to do that, uh, that we should not be unmindful of the fact that uh, the rest of the world is struggling and we're not an island. And at the end of the day, we need to be mindful of that. That is so far away from the Fed's mandate. Uh, you just have to scratch your head about that. Uh, but uh, my observation is that uh, this, is, this is really Mrs. Yellen to the rescue yeah. 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, it is sort of amazing how far we've come and what a different world we are in, for sure. Well, looking forward to seeing what happens. Thank you so much for your perspective. Dr. Stephen Skanky is Chief Economic Advisor down at Keel Point. Well, as Taylor said a few minutes ago, we've both been really looking forward to this conversation because it sort of has something for both of us, really something for everyone. Christine Jones is the co-founder and managing partner of Blue Highway Growth Capital. It's based down in Motown, Philly, but she's here with us in New York City today investing outside of the normal corridor, shall we say. Christine, tell us what you're looking at. Right. So I should probably also start by saying we have offices in Boston and in Maine. Well, there you and, go. Uh, and Maine is in our rural footprint. We are called Blue Highway because we are on the back roads. The old atlases used to be uh, roads were in blue and the freeways were in red. So we're on the beaten path, but we're, we have to fly there. So we're in the cities. We're focused on rural businesses because there's a very big structural break in the marketplace. There's neither debt nor equity that's getting into a great majority of financeable companies. Uh, we know, for instance, in 2018, the second quarter, almost 82% of, of all venture capital money went into four states, California, Massachusetts, New York, and Texas. So there's a large gap of, of uh, part of the country that doesn't have access to patient equity capital. Now, that's venture capital. There is private equity in general, which is buyout, and, and still those states have a disproportionate amount of capital going to it. And 42% of the capital goes to Internet based companies. There's so not enough equity, but neither is there debt. You would think community banks might pick up the slack and mm-hmm. begin to um, finance these businesses. But in fact, not only are the numbers of banks declining significantly, uh, for instance, one, single bra- branch banks have declined in number over the last uh, two decades from 7,000 to 1,000. So there's a precipitous decline in numbers of banks. And the amount of debt they lend to companies is just 16% of its portfolio. So most of the lending is to residential mortgages and commercial real estate development projects, not to companies. And I wonder why aren't they lending, which is where you step in. Is it the risk return profile isn't there and you're able to take on risk that a normal traditional lender may not want to take on? Where do you step in? So we step in in a variety of ways. A lot of instances, um, owner operators are not comfortable talking about debt or equity financing. They might have a negative predisposition toward private equity, for instance. Um, So we come in with our limited partnership base, which includes a lot of farm credit banks and community banks, impact investors, um, even though we're we're, um, not just impact, we are a return-driven fund. We are stepping in where um, where these people are not. And, and I think what we're finding is, is the funding sources are primarily for growth, to accelerate growth, to perhaps facilitate an intergenerational family transfer. We, about one in five family businesses expect that their, their company will change hands in the next five years. So we're having those conversations, and I think that's what was required, the listening, the, the kitchen table conversations, the amount of time it takes to get to know people yeah. and to gain their trust. Well, well, I wanted to ask you about that because this is a very high-touch business, and obviously you're, you're dealing with sort of a disparate community in a lot of ways. You're hitting those blue highways, I would imagine. Like, you're having to go on the road. How do you source deals? Right. So we're so fortunate that we have a really unique and and diverse 
um, deal sourcing network. We have, uh, as I mentioned, our limited partners, which include uh, community. We have 25 community banks, farm credit banks, foundations, endowments, family offices that are very much focused on the same structural gap mm-hmm. and, and providing the filling that gap with capital. So we have deals that come in routinely from those very dedicated sources. And yes, we've been on those roads for many years <laughs> and talking to lots of people. So we know lawyers and accounting firms. We have community development organizations such as Coastal Enterprises, Inc. in Maine, a lot of uh, CDFIs, Rural LISC. Uh, uh, we have the New York BDC right. and uh, the Community Development VC Alliance. So there's a lot of effort. Plus, I would mention this. We are a woman-run fund, yeah. and we have uniquely uh, identified great opportunities as a result of that network, which is also underserved. One thing, one of the many things that my co-host Jason Kelly has taught me within his private equity world and the venture capital world is there is so much cash, so much money chasing too few deals. Where now are you finding the opportunities or the appropriate investments if you have so much competition chasing these deals? Well, I wish it was I wish it was true in the market that we're in. I mean, sometimes we thought we were bleeding edge, not leading edge. <laughs> so um, it isn't the case where we are that there's a lot of money chasing these deals. I think those that's true for metropolitan areas. That's true for um, crowded spaces in terms of industries. And we don't find that. I think uh, I think we're kind of the small middle market. We invest two to five million in companies with five to 50 million in revenues. And that is almost venture cap that's the first round of capital after yeah. venture capital so we're getting the graduates and sometimes the local uh, the local individuals who've done well who have supported these companies in their communities have tapped out of their their ability to fund them and so we're, we're frequently the first institutional money into those businesses right. what's good news for us is there is a lot of other pri- private equity out there so that after five years or seven years or ten years, on. Yeah. they'll be the ultimate exit for our companies. So give yeah. us a sense, only about a minute left, but give us a sense of an industry where this capital is especially needed cutting across geographies. So rural, rural broadband is a specific industry. Yeah. We have many themes, but I'll just focus on that for a moment. Uh, almost 23 million individuals in, or households in this country have no or inadequate access to rural broadband. It's hard to be a competitive business and and to have a sustainable company if you can't have access to rural broadband. But we like other things like aquaculture, animal health products, artisan foods, technical textiles. Uh, These are all really exciting industries for us. Yeah, as I was looking across your portfolio, it's so smart, too, because, you know, having spent some time in rural areas, we both have, you do get, there are different types of businesses uh, that that grow up there. And as you say, sort of a playback to maybe some agricultural roots, some artisan roots uh, as well. Really, really interesting stuff. Christine Jones, co-founder and managing partner of Blue Highway Growth Capital. She's based in Philadelphia. Fortunate to have have her here with us in New York City. little Hall and Oates for you to bring in this next story out of touch and certainly out of step with the times, I think could easily describe Victoria's Secret and its parent company, L Brands, caught up very much in the Jeffrey Epstein scandal. 
but much more going on at that company. Let's get into that. Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week, is here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. As is Jordan Holman. She's retail reporter for Bloomberg. Her story, it's really caught on in a very big way because it tells us about what's going on underneath all of the sort of top-line scandal at Victoria's Secret. She's here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio as well. Jordan, I want to start with you. This story hit the terminal yesterday, I believe, and has just taken off. What's the thesis? So the idea is, with this Jeffrey Epstein scandal, we learned that Leslie Wexner, who runs L Brands, which owns a Victoria's Secret, they had a long-time friendship. They said they severed ties a long time ago, but... While he was still connected, they were associated with a modeling agency that got young models to be on the fashion show. And then that also, Victoria's Secret just hasn't kept up with the times in terms of their product and how they show women. We were talking about this yesterday in terms of not keeping up with the times. I remember watching the Victoria's Secret fashion show in December, maybe 10 years ago, five years ago or so. And recently, you're right, it feels out of step. It's... Not, I don't think, with the Me Too movement and everything else going on, um, really where young women's minds are at. How big of a problem is that? That's a, a, a huge issue. This goes beyond Jeff Epstein. How did they turn that around? Yeah, so their fashion show is a huge hallmark event for themselves, you know. So 10 years ago, like you mentioned, people would go to TV, watch it. You're watching Tyra, Giselle. But in the p- recent years, the fall off of, um, of viewers has gone down by millions. So earlier this year, Victoria's Secret said, we're rethinking everything about our brand. And we're actually going to pull our fashion show from TV. So people are thinking it would be on streaming. But then that also brings up other issues. Okay, well, how do you actually view models and women? And so that issue is still not being dealt with. Jordan, you had a pretty epic tweet um, that uh, I thought was a great way to put it, which was uh, when you kind of like dug into uh, Victoria's Secret, Victoria's Secret was made for men. That is true. Tell us about what you learned about the brand as you were reporting this story. So Victoria's Secret got started in 1977, and it got started by a man named Roy Raymond, who went to a department store to buy his wife some lingerie. He did not love the experience, and he left that store thinking, there should be a store for men to buy women's underwear, and so that's what he created. And five years later, that's when Leslie Wexner bought the company for $1 million. It's now worth much more. But you just have to remember, 40 years ago, this company was made with men in mind and to make them feel comfortable. So when we're having this conversation in 2019 about, why well, don't they think about women and what women want today? They were founded with men in mind. It was actually programmed yeah. in a completely different way. Right? Correct. Well, and the other thing, one of the other things you point out in this story, Jordan, is that L Brands and Victoria's Secret specifically, its competitors have sort of caught up a little bit to the current zeitgeist. What are they doing and who are they that Victoria's Secret may not be? Yeah, to be fair, Victoria's Secret's competitors are younger, so they don't have to deal with the 40 years of history. But one of their competitors is American Eagle's Airy Line, which is known for its body positivity. They use models who are plus size um, of all races, and they're really leaning into the, let us make this lingerie comfortable compared to just sexy and look good. And so they're really doing well in terms of bringing people into their stores, bringing younger customers, more diverse customers. And that the body positivity, how do you, how, how is that defined and why are they doing that so well? 
Yeah, body positivity is the idea that it starts with the person compared to how it's marketed. So do you feel comfortable wearing these clothes regardless of how thin you are being a size two? It's like whatever size you are, let's start there. It's great. And now let us make clothes that fit you and that you feel comfortable that in. That seems like in touch with the times in a way that, uh, I don't know, maybe size zero models with gigantic angels doesn't, right? Angel Cor- wings. Correct, yeah. And angel wings aren't necessarily comfortable. So, um, To be fair... Because we are fair. Uh, Victoria's Secret sales are still above $7 billion, I, I where they shocked, have been like how since much 2015. It's still generating, right? Uh, arguably, they have a monopoly. Competitors have made yeah. some small inroads. What's the company saying? 30 seconds. So the company is saying that we are rethinking things. We understand that we have this criticism, but at the end of the day, most people are coming to us. When you think about bras, you're going to Victoria's Secret. Mm-hmm. So to keep younger customers, they do have to think about it down the line, but for right now, People, people still go. Right. It's a really great read. Highly recommend uh, checking it out on Bloomberg.com, Bloomberg Terminal. Jordan and I also got a chance to catch up for our weekend show. You can catch that later in the week. A very important story. Victoria's Secret has more than a Jeffrey Epstein problem. Jordan Holman, thank you so much. Joel Weber, thank you. I'm driving in my car. I'll turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, it's time for the drive to the close. One of our real favorites is back with us. Tom Plum, President and Chief Investment Officer of the Plum Funds, based out in Madison, Wisconsin, here with us in New York City. Well, we got to start with the big news, which is, first, you're just back recently from China. We want to talk about that visit, but... First of all, congratulations on the reason you went. Your grandfather for the first time. That's so exciting. Yeah, it was wonderful. That's yeah. great. Visiting uh, the new baby in Shanghai beyond the pure joy. What did you see when you were there? I saw an economy that was amazing because it was the digital economy intertwined with this old world. So there's still people with bamboo brooms sweeping the streets, but there is uh, scooters everywhere, and those scooters were delivering things all the time. They all had their iPhones on the scooter as you were watching from them for them as you're wa- driving and walking and all those things, and they're all delivering everything instantaneously coffee, you need a latte, you need something, just Amazon Prime on steroids. You know, we bring it back here to the U.S., and we're in the middle of earnings season. Today, 12% of the S&P market cap is reporting, which we're eagerly awaiting for, given that it's sort of a good fundamental day to get back and take a look at those good old P.E. ratios and valuations. Analysts are raising their price targets while cutting their earnings per share growth. How does that translate into valuations for you? Do we look healthy? Do we look toppy? What's your take? Well, the American consumer did not get the memo that the world is in a recession or facing recession or very fear. 
So we've seen a lot of growth there. Uh, for us, we specifically like these companies that have software as a service, and especially if they're using a subscription model and they have strong recurring revenue streams. They'll have a piece of the pie that will continue to grow, and if the pie grows, they'll grow even faster. But it's really a trend that's secular in nation. In it's secular and it's contained to grow very fast. All right, so synthesize what you just said with your visit to China. Then the Chinese consumer; these are two countries that are trying to get together on some sort of trade deal. How does this play out, given all of those forces that you see on either side? Well, for one thing, it makes the Chinese. Aware that they have to continue to grow domestic consumption, and they're going to keep pushing that, and they're going to allow a lot of things to happen in that country. Uh, they will open up some things uh, periodically, but it's really a sign that enabling technology is expanding world economics probably more than tariffs, political issues, and anything else that you could think of. And how much do we worry about a deal not getting done between these two countries? I think anyone who thinks that a deal is going to be done is is a little bit naive because when you look at the political environment we've had, the rhetoric, those are all one thing. But the next thing is what's going on in Congress with NAFTA. What the Chinese see is that, okay, we can make concessions, we can reach a deal, then we'll get President Trump to ask for more concessions, and then if we finally got a deal, it'll go to Congress and they'll ask for more concessions. Uh, like we mentioned, we're in the middle of earnings season. We take a look at what you are buying in your Plum Balanced Fund and of some individual stocks really that stand out to us. And you mentioned sort of secular trends, cyclical trends as well that are going on. Within the payment system, give me your take. Why do you like these in MasterCard? Well, you know, we, this, some of our friends called MVP. It's MasterCard, Visa, PayPal. And what we like is the fact that the electronic purchasing for consumers is just going to continue to expand. Visa, historically, when you and I go into a store, about 14 cents on every dollar goes through a Visa card. If we buy online, it's a little over 44% of every dollar goes to the Visa card. So when you look at those technologies, those enablements, they're just going to continue to grow no matter how or what you buy, you're going to buy it somehow using electronic payment. And that still pales at the potential of business-to-business transactions, which uh, is about five times larger than consumer-to-business. And where Visa and MasterCard are making innovations because about 80% of the business-to-business transactions go through cash, check, or wire transfer. So those are opportunities for these countries that companies that really are dominating their space. The space is expanding. Well, and uh, as you mentioned, on the consumer-to-business side or the business-to-consumer side, you also have Square, which is another name you like. They're coming out with earnings on August 1st, I believe. Let's switch uh, for a minute if we can. Lockheed Martin is also a name that you like. Why? Well, again, look at the world today, and you're going to be in a scary place. A uh, scary place means that people spend money on defense. So the United States does, our allies do. The F-35 that Lockheed has is uh, going to continue to grow. And in any major backlog-driven business, when you can increase your production rate, you also increase your margins. So 
here you've got organic growth on the top line, and you're going to have margin growth. And that's not even touching on some of the secret things that they're doing with the supersonic missiles and those areas where there's some real threats being created around the world. All right. Biggest worry that you have about this market right now, 30 seconds. The the market's going to react to the uh, Fed. Right. Uh, What they're going to see is that it's going to all depend on the comments because I think no matter if they cut 25 basis points or they don't, a lot of people will be disappointed. So it's all going to be on the comments on what the Fed sees. All right. Tom Plum, President and Chief Investment Officer of Plum Funds. New grandfather as well. Congratulations again on that. Uh, Doing very, very well this year and for the past couple years, in many cases in the 98th, 99th percentile, beating almost all of his peers. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.